At the beginning of November, Zaluzhny suggested in an interview with The Economist that Ukraine's summer counteroffensive was stalling. Just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate, he said, prompting a debate about whether the statement was correct. Timothy Schneider, a Yale professor, responded by arguing that war is not a game of chess and that the quantity of resources or weaponry available to each side is not limited as it would be in a game. The West can help Kiev by dropping five more queens onto the board at any time, he said. Military aid that would allow Ukraine to break the deadlock, as happened in Kherson and Kharkiv in 2022. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on podcast platforms. Please do like and subscribe to help people find our incredible speakers. And of course, if you do enjoy the content, support us by becoming a patron or buy me a coffee. Today, I'm speaking with Anders Park Nielsen, military analyst and influential YouTuber based in Denmark. He specializes in naval warfare and strategy. In today's video, we're going to be talking about Ukrainian successes against Russia's Black Sea fleet and, of course, the state of the ground war in Ukraine. Anders, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Let's let's start with probably the most exciting thing, and that is that you have a book out. Uh, it is not in English yet, so any publishers listening, please pay attention. Uh, this would be a uh, no-brainer to get an English copy out. But what was your motivation for the book, and what's the topic? It's uh, it's it's called the logic of war. Uh, so it's uh, it's a book that tries to explain modern warfare uh, for people that don't really know anything about it already so it's a it's a popular book uh in, in that sense and the idea is that uh we will go through in different chapters different sort of um topics related to war so it starts with the, the big picture the politics strategy why do we have military forces and then we go into sort of um more um tactical elements later, like uh, land warfare, naval warfare, air warfare, hybrid warfare, uh, nuclear war, these kinds of things. And it's something we, uh, I, I had a discussion with the publisher about a year ago that uh, in this new security situation with the, 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 the full-scale invasion in Ukraine and just war suddenly being on the European agenda again, that this is something we, we need, that there is a need in society for that kind of introduction for people that haven't really uh, paid much attention to military questions over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and so, so that was the target audience, people that, that don't really know a lot about the military already, but I found that actually people that are in the armed forces also seem to find it interesting. Uh, military people tend to get very focused on their own branch. So I'm an army guy. I know something about the army. Okay, well, here's uh, an introduction to the Air Force and the Navy. And, and so, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's been very well received. But as you say, unfortunately, only in Danish so far. Yes, unfortunately, my Danish is not uh, is not brilliant, it has to be said. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I look, I look forward to the potential to read it there. And it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because... Um, We've got used to wars that are don't invoke such losses of men and material uh, as we're seeing now. And uh, I was watching footage last night uh, shot by a, uh, a British soldier uh, fighting with the Ukrainian forces. 
And he was, you know, shining the camera around his trench. And it is exactly like the First World War. You've got a bunker um, dug into the ground. You've got mud. You've got rats. You've got the sound of artillery constantly overhead. Um, the only difference here, of course, is you have drones. Um, so how does the book tackle this idea that this is an incredibly high-intensity war, one which we perhaps have not experienced for you know, 70, 80 years. Yeah, there's both the scale of it, as you say, like this is, it looks like World War One. the just the, the the number of casualties, it's just enormous compared to anything we've seen um, recently or that, that the West has been involved in. Um, but I will also say that I think maybe conceptually, the big difference is that this is not a war of choice. This is a war of necessity. It is, it is imposing itself on us. So we are suddenly in that situation where we can't really turn our back to this and say that, okay, we're not interested in this. It's the, it's the old Trotsky thing, isn't it? Okay, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, yeah, there, there's been a lot of talk about war fatigue uh, over the, 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 the fall uh, here in, in the West. And, but the thing is, it, it doesn't really matter if, we, if we're tired of this war and we, we don't want to deal with it anymore. It's here and uh, we, we have to. And, and I think that is conceptually a very big difference uh, for the Western countries because we've been used to wars being something that happens in uh, faraway places. It's in Iraq, it's in Afghanistan. We go there, we can sort of decide how much money do we want to invest in this. And if we think, okay, now we've sort of gotten tired of it, we can just leave. Um, but that is not the case with this war. Uh, it's just a different security situation in Europe. And we have to, we have to get to terms with that. And one of the challenges, isn't it? I don't remember through any of the coverage of the Iraq war or any recent war, the conversation about things running out, you know, artillery shells running out, bullets running out, um, even sort of hardware uh, running out. And yet this is now a recurrent theme here. Um, do you see any evidence um, that this is being properly addressed and that Western countries are retooling factories in order to tackle this? It's true. I mean, this was not an issue before, and I think uh, there were several reasons for that. One, it wasn't so intense in Iraq or Afghanistan, but the other one was just the nature of the whole thing, that this was a war of choice and we would just you know, use whatever we had and whatever we decided we wanted to spend. So it was more of a, a money constraint that, okay, well, we don't really have any money to contribute with more than we already do. So, so that was... The limiting factor. I, I do think we, this is being addressed now um, to some extent. I mean, we, we are seeing both in North America and in Europe, uh, these factories being opened and uh, production increasing. It's not going as fast as would have been nice. I also think it's, it's uh, some of the political decisions have been uh, just made too late. Uh, that um, in, in general, I think we can say that the realization that the, the, the war in Ukraine is going to be a long one and that it's, it's going to be uh, a, a war of attrition where we really need to boost the production. I think this realization came sooner in Russia than, in, than it came in the West. In the West, there were very big hopes that the Ukrainian counteroffensive this summer would be so decisive that it, it wasn't, wasn't really necessary. To, to make all these expensive decisions. So Russia came to this realization sometime in 2022. And I think 
we're only getting there now in uh, in in Western Europe. But I do think that these decisions will be made. I do think we will see uh, the results of this, maybe not as much in 2024 as we would like, but then 2025 and and, and onward, because it just takes a lot of time. We're just opening a new uh, factory in Denmark to produce ammunition. Um, we'll produce all the various, from the very small ones to the large artillery rounds, but it's going to take two years to get this production line running. And, and the decision was only made a couple of months ago. So, so these decisions are being made in different places in Europe. It's, it just doesn't mean an immediate boost in availability. And that in the longer term means, of course, that Russia will be facing a rearmed, retooled Europe in a number of years. Um, it's likely that Russia won't have the capacity to uh, mount a full-scale attack on NATO territory you know, in that period. So that that hopefully is good. But it's not just the implication here that the Russia realized early that this is going to be more of an attritional uh, war and that the maneuver component was going to get bogged down. Uh, it's not just an implication for their economy, which they clearly are retooling their economy far faster. And of course, they're getting uh, munitions from allies uh, from North Korea. The other implication, of course, is it allowed them to create incredible defensive fortifications. Why did we let them do that? Because the so-called stalemate does largely stem from not following up on the uh, war of maneuver that we saw after Kherson and Kharkiv. I think uh, to a large extent, uh, we, so in that, I mean, mostly the West actually, and maybe to some extent also Ukraine, but I think mostly in NATO fell into the trap of underestimating Russia. If we go back about a year, then the general narrative in, in the West was that the Russians are absolutely incompetent. They, they, they don't know how to do uh, military operations. Their logistics are uh, insufficient. Um, the morale is terrible. Uh, so, so there was this notion that if we just give Russia a couple of Western tanks and uh, then everything will be fine, Ukraine will be able to do maneuver warfare because the, 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 the Russian soldiers in the trenches, they are so incompetent, they wouldn't know what to do with it. And they would be just scared at the first sight of a challenger tank. Right. And uh, so, so that is, I think, one of the reasons why they were given so much time to actually prepare the defenses. The, they, they, we just underestimated them. But then I think also the whole question of escalation control, it really is important. And we can, we can discuss a lot how, how big a problem is this really? What, how big uh, is the risk actually of Russian escalation? Personally, I, I, I think it has been mostly um, sort of overestimated by many many in the West, um, and that it isn't really that dangerous to push Russia, because what would they escalate with, right? But uh, I, I do think this is a concern that has been a driving sort of uh, factor in, in, in different countries. So we can uh, talk about Germany, for example, that is, especially in the beginning of this whole thing was very cautious. But I think also when in the United States, for example, this is something that we really see this concern about escalation um, playing into this. And this is a daunting topic because, of course, we have possibly overestimated the threat of nuclear war and these these other aspects. 
but maybe underestimated the threat of hybrid operations. Um, even though there isn't direct causal link between what happens in in Israel uh, and uh, and uh, and Gaza, it did happen on Putin's birthday. There is a dotted line between Russia uh, and Iran, and of course Hamas is a, a proxy of Iran. Whether they were involved in the detailed planning or not, certainly Russia has been pumping funds into Iran uh, through the purchase of drones and equipment. Uh, and what happened in the Mideast has massively benefited Russia. We now see Venezuela potentially kicking off and talking about absorbing a neighbour. Um, have we underestimated Russia's capacity to create irregular chaos, irregular warfare headaches around the world? Um Assuming, as you say, once again, that Russia is uh, is is weak and incapable, and yet it has the capacity for considerable chaos uh, in this uh, sort of hybrid warfare. Um, it does. Um, and, and definitely that is a concern. Uh, and I think both around the world with these kinds of crises, Russia may play into this and they they are very skilled at that. So that is uh that is one dimension, but I think we've also underestimated their ability to actually push the buttons in our own societies, um, Russian information warfare. Uh, and I, I think especially when we look to the political chaos right now in the United States, I think it's, um, it's reasonable to think that some of that is actually the result of Russian information warfare being massively successful. And uh, this is something that we did not um, probably address, and we did not anticipate that they would be able to do that um, in in the way they did. The, that we thought that uh, we have things sort of under control uh, in the beginning of the, the invasion. It, it didn't look that successful, and the Western cohesion seemed like this was... Uh, this was not a point of debate, but suddenly it is. Um, so so I, I think definitely there has been this tendency to underestimate Russia as an opponent in many different places, from the battlefield and to the information realm and just the global um, political situation in general. And we have a similar situation on the Polish-Slovak-Hungarian border where many, many thousands of trucks are now uh, blocked, um, some containing humanitarian aid, essential supplies, uh, medical supplies, including tourniquets. So we can be absolutely clear, this is no doubt costing Ukrainian lives because high-quality tourniquets save lives on the front line. We have some military equipment that is now demonstrably held up. And what seems to be here, and again, the Western media seems in large part not to dig beneath these stories and has perhaps uh, quite a naive take on it. We have uh, very small numbers of truckers associated with real minority unions uh, within the industry. And there is clear connections between the ringleaders uh, and far-right pro-Russian movements. So again, it seems to me you've got active measures or hybrid warfare unfolding on the border of Europe and nothing seems to be done about it. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, so, so that is one example, and 
uh, also, I just think it's, we, we, we should expect uh, different kinds of interference in general in, in the West when there are elections, protests about whatever. Uh, just uh, Russia has demonstrated in the past that they, they are good at these things. And it can be really hard to, uh, to pinpoint exactly when this is taking place because it very often happens in ways that are indistinguishable from just normal discourse that is sort of healthy in a democracy. Um, but we should definitely be aware that the, these are risks. Um, and probably also something to keep in mind for, for all those that argue that Ukraine definitely needs to hold presidential elections next year, right? I think this would be an absolutely fantastic opportunity for Russia to, uh, to try to, to sow uh, um, more problems in, in Ukraine and in the relationship between Ukraine and the West if, if Ukraine is pushed into those kinds of things. So it's, a, it's, it's also something that we just need to keep in mind there. And we do see a return to politics in some quarters within Ukraine. We see some acrimonious debate already breaking out. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's almost indistinguishable to say, is there any Russian influence behind it? Or is it a domestic um, democratic phenomenon? This is where it becomes very, very difficult to protect yourself in an open society against those who uh, have malicious intent. Yes, absolutely. Um, and Ukraine is, uh, is because Ukraine is a democratic society, there is this debate, there is this plurality of opinions uh, battling it out, then obviously Russia is going to, to play into that. Um, uh, but I, I mean, that is just ex something we should expect. And that is something that uh, uh, people need to be prepared to deal with. And uh, to some extent, I mean, it's it's also not necessarily a problem, uh, especially if you take a country like Ukraine. But what, what they often do is, is, of course, they they go in and they play on existing sort of ideas about things. And that means that this idea is, in fact, already there. Uh, they don't usually just make up stuff. Um, so, I mean... That the fact that there are discussions, I think, basically is healthy. There's been this discussion about the uh, uh, okay, is is there some disagreement between the the political level in Ukraine and the the military uh, leaders? And uh, I mean, generally, I think it would be healthy to have an exchange of ideas, and that the best ideas come out on top in in the other end of that. And it's also important that we have the military commanders playing in with their expertise. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be challenging. We have something called Maidan Three. Apparently, Surkov has uh, reappeared on the on the horizon, and uh, it does seem that part of the strategy is is to disrupt um, Ukrainian civic and political society. So, if we I think that was actually the, that was actually the plan from the beginning, wasn't it? That was the whole the whole idea about this very fast Blitzkrieg kind of invasion thing. That it wasn't really supposed to be a military victory. It was supposed to instigate that sort of counter-revolution to, to, to Maidan, where the Russian speakers would rise up and get rid of Zelensky and um, take, take the power in Ukraine. And I, maybe it's just the, the same kind of plan still playing out there. Yeah, I'm sure they believe they can still weaponize uh, the Russian language within uh, Ukraine, um, perhaps still underestimating the, the resilience. Now, if we put everything we've talked together, um, 
There's an interesting quote here from Gary Kasparov. He says, like so much in the defense of the democratic world and its values, failure is a matter of will, not capacity. How well does this apply to the West in the current state? Are we are we actually afraid of a Russian defeat or are we afraid of Ukrainian victory or a little bit of both? Or do we simply not have the political will um, to formulate a strategy for victory? I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, but I think we are at a point now where there is a, a, a massive lack of Western strategy related to Ukraine. The idea was that the counteroffensive would be decisive and that by now we would be in a place where Russia would be would have been forced into negotiations where Putin would have to make massive compromises. And uh, that was basically the whole idea uh, from the West. Uh, and then when that didn't work, then what now? What is the plan going forward? Uh, and um, I, I still think the West will get to it and will realize that that it is actually necessary. We don't really have an option not to keep uh, providing Ukraine the, the, the tools to to keep fighting. But the, the big question is, of course, do we do we go all in, provide enough for Ukraine to actually win this thing, or do we just provide just enough that uh, Ukraine can can keep the war? uh going but 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 it, it will never really end uh that is that is one of the big questions right now um but i i mean i absolutely agree with kasparov there this is a this is a matter of will it's not a matter of resources um i i mean i look at my own country i look around people are doing generally fine i mean we've been supporting ukraine for almost two years now in this war fighting it it doesn't seem to be a big problem. I, like the Danish welfare state is still here. We even have money for tax cuts right now. Uh, the economy is doing fine. Uh, you know, if we want to, we can easily afford to keep uh, funding this war. Um, and the average citizen in the West would hardly notice. So that is the difference between the GDP of, of Russia and the GDP of so the combined West. Uh, so if we have the political will to do this, then absolutely it's no problem. But I, I think there has been, um, in the West, uh, it's been a political mistake in the first year and a half, I'd say of the, uh, uh, after the invasion to frame all the aid to Ukraine in terms of billions of dollars. Like every, every aid package has been the first thing has, okay, how, how, how many, millions or billions of dollars are we now providing and then after that you get to what what does it actually contain and it, it's just been a competition of, of making these numbers that sound big and uh and it has actually very efficiently created the impression that it's extremely expensive for to 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 fund this war where in reality it, it really isn't the, that big numbers um so uh i i think i think it's a it's a problem that the west has generated by itself it's a it, it's a bean counting problem isn't it really the way it's framed um when you dig into the numbers it's a it's a small part relatively of say the u.s military budget and what's also masked by the figures is that actually it sounds like a lot of money but it's now been shown that almost all of that money gets spent in the u.s itself either by renewing equipment um 
transportation, you know, companies, et cetera, logistics companies, all that money is actually spent and powers the US economy. Uh, and for all that old kit that's being used up, um, you have to replace it. And it's the same. And you've got Europe rearming. Uh, a lot of that money is going to go into into buying and purchasing uh, U.S. military systems. Um, we see that if you fly into Poland, as you know, you'll you'll see in Jeshaw, uh Patriot missile batteries lining the runways. You know, you're looking at billions upon billions of, of, of dollars there. Um, this is a huge boost to the U.S. economy, but it is not positioned as such in the media. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, so that is the case for the the United States. But I'd say even for a country like uh, like Denmark, we don't have that big a military production. So I think most of, of, of the money we invest in this goes abroad, but uh, it isn't that much money. I, I remember uh, uh, back in, in, in the spring, uh, the government came out with some numbers that was intended to show how much how how generous we are how much we're supporting ukraine so they they came out in billions of danish kroner and i i made the math and it turned out to be about uh, about 100 euros per uh per citizen of denmark in the first year so it was like is 100 euros is that is that is that a lot like is is that the, the big existential war that we're talking about here i um of course we can we can afford to keep spending 100 euros per person for <laughs> as long as it takes right uh if we want to and we could of course also boost that to 200 or 300 and every everyone would still be fine now while russia cannot match in terms of resources and expenditure it makes up for it in weaponizing information. And that does seem to be extraordinarily successful. I'm going to list, and you're, you're very fine-tuned to these disinformation narratives. Um, we have the sort of nuclear threat one. We have the Russia is going to fall apart one. Uh, we have, um, you know, Putin's bad, but the next guy, he could be far worse. These have been shown to be narratives that are very much pushed from the Russian side and coordinated. Um and now there's another narrative, which is about stalemate and peace deal. So not stalemate as such, because, of course, Ukrainians have been talking about that in, in, in certain terms, too. But this idea that there is a potential peace deal and, of course, that, um, you know, somehow there was a peace deal on the table last year and Boris Johnson blew it. You'll have seen that that one there. Um these narratives, unfortunately, seem to have strong traction. I go to a lot of events, uh, Ukrainian events and events where you have uh, experts on Russia. And unfortunately, you know, you've got an audience there who is deeply interested in what's going on. These questions come up over and over and over. And it infuriates me because they're amplifying and repeating propaganda narratives at some level. Does that also uh, influence the decisions and actions of our um, political leaders and strategists it absolutely does um these our political leaders also get a lot of their they're just human beings like the rest of us they also get their information from news sources from online sort of social media uh these platforms and they're very susceptible to this my i found personally that when I talk to politicians, um, they are very busy people. They usually don't have time to dig very deep into the numbers. Uh, so they are maybe some of the people that are most susceptible to these headlines kind of things. You just, oh, there is a very quick headline, flashy news story here. Read the first 
couple of paragraphs and then then that was it and they have to get on to the next thing so this is definitely something that is shaping also the the uh, the perception of our decision makers um, and I think to a large extent the point is not necessarily to uh, that that these things will will have sort of a permanent uh, value but some of these narratives may slow down the decision processes right now so i said russia right now has about a year's head start in ramping up production for a long war i think that is their primary benefit right now so by pushing this narrative that there might be a peace deal on the table that zelensky can take if only he wants to and the problem is that he's too uncompromising right that i there is no peace deal on the table. This is not going to happen. There's no way Russia, Putin would accept a peace deal uh, that, that kind of freezes the current situation. And that would be the basis of a lasting peace. That's just not going to happen. The Russians are not prepared for that at all. But who knows? I mean, if, if this is a successful narrative, then they may be able to delay some of those Western decisions a bit more. So we can have another year where the industrial sort of production is not rammed up in the West. And that will maybe be enough time for Russia where they, they will have that industrial advantage. So that is how many of these things work. Eventually the West will figure out that, okay, there was no peace deal on the table, but I mean, it, it, the, the damage is done. It's unfortunate, isn't it? Because already experts on Russia are saying that one, the Russian economy is being retooled, the budget is being retooled for a long war. Um, psychologically, the population is being geared up uh, to embrace that, the idea of an eternal war. They're linking it to Russian national values. Um, they're even looking to ban abortion. So clearly they've got uh, a long-term view in mind there to create a new army of uh, so-called cannon meat. Um, and Khodorkovsky and others have made the point that Putin has now gone so far down this rabbit hole that actually there's no way back that the entire propaganda infrastructure and even the economy is legitimized by ongoing war. And, you know, there are huge risks uh, potentially associated with there not being an existential struggle, uh, which to use as sort of propaganda fodder. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that those, there are economical reasons for this, that uh, it is, this is also just where the, the investments are right now. You have uh, different oligarchs and uh, people just financially invested in this and uh, it's, it's jobs. You can't just close some of these things again without hurting the economy. So, so there are different kinds of tie in there, but there's also the, the whole thing that the, the war has by now become the political project for Putin, that is basically the only real message that he has that is uh, that that legitimizes his position as the leader of Russia, um, and it has to be sort of a, a constant thing from now on, in one way or another. And I think also there is the, the the whole question is as long as the war is going on, then that is. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of debate inside of Russia that is not taking place because there is a war, there's this special situation. But uh, once that 
situation is solved, if, if the war is over, then Putin will have to find to face all kinds of questions related to, okay, was it worth it? Did we actually achieve what we wanted to? Like, um, uh, and, and Putin is not that omnipotent sort of czar that could, that doesn't have to care about what people think. Like these are actually important questions. The whole question of legitimacy and um, it, it, it is essential. And I think right now Putin looks like he's self-confident. Uh, Russia looks very stable, but we should all the time remember that this is a fragile country. I mean, um, it's only six months ago there was uh whatever we call the, the wagner mutiny coup kind of thing um like these things are all the time under the surface and uh i i think actually the 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 russian society is weaker than than many people assume um so the, these are things that, that that putin has to to all the time balance it's interesting. I mean, I've been able to speak to a number of people who have had in the past connections um, uh, deep within, say, the the FSB, which, of course, gave gave rise to Putin. He's from that kind of uh, that class um, and people who've actually spoken to Peskov uh, in the last year. And it does seem that they are deeply paranoid deeply obsessed by the idea that Russia could fall apart. This isn't just narrative which they use to bounce back and like, you wouldn't like uh, having to deal with a dozen Russias, you know, all nuclear armed, chaos, etc. It seems to be a deep, paranoid belief that if you let organic political processes take hold, Russia would potentially unravel. And of course, many of them have a much better historical knowledge uh, of the Russian revolution and civil war than perhaps we do. And that does still seem to be something that informs a lot of that uh, thinking. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, what is often forgotten in the West is the, the extent to which regime security is the most important factor in decision making in, in Russia. This is, it, is, uh, it is mostly about keeping Putin in power. Uh, and that is that is the most important political goal at all, and then there are all the other ones that sort of come after that. But but the the, the first one is always regime security, uh, and I, I think there is also a tendency to conflate regime security with uh, national security. That they have this idea that um, we, and by that mostly Putin, pulled Russia out of the mess that was the 1990s he restored the greatness of russia and if putin uh is no longer there then that will mean that russia will fall back into this mess this non-existence um will will lose the status as a great power so to some extent i i, I think genuinely they do believe that that the the fall of putin would be the same as the fall of russia um, which of course is is nonsense, but it's uh, it's 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 a firmly held belief that that also means that you get into the situation. What is what is best for Putin is the same as what is best for for, for Russia in general. So that basically justifies almost anything. It's a very Shakespearean concept, isn't it? That the uh, the head of state and the state itself and its health are one and one and the same. I mean, right at the start of the conflict, where people were still talking about NATO and how culpable NATO was. 
I think they came to the conclusion that this was more a succession crisis than a security crisis. Um, do you think that's been borne out now? Because um, Putin seems to have withdrawn critical military defense systems from Kaliningrad, Belgorod, um, from the Finnish border. It's extraordinary. If NATO is the problem, if NATO was always the threat, why is he apparently leaving the NATO borderlands completely unprotected? I do think he feels pretty confident that NATO will not invade from Finland, Finland or, or from, from Estonia, Latvia. Um, and then I do think he also uh, still believes that, that the greatest threat from NATO is in Ukraine. And that is why I said, I mean, it's absolutely impossible to imagine that, that Russia would accept a peace deal that, just, that means that they get to keep some of the territories that they have occupied and then the rest of Ukraine can be free and independent and join NATO and the EU. I mean, from a Russian perspective, that would that would mean losing the war. Um, if 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 the rest of Ukraine can join NATO, then that they Russia will have lost their strategic objectives uh, in 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 that sense. So uh, so so the I mean, you can take that argument too far and say it shows. Putin was not really afraid of NATO. Well, I, I think he sees the biggest threat from NATO actually playing out in Ukraine and that the current war is a war about who gets to control Ukraine in the long run. Is it going to be NATO or is it going to be Russia? And he 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 believes the the most important thing there, of course, is that Russia will win that. And it also just shows that the the goals. Of, of Russia in Ukraine are have basically not changed since the since the beginning of the war. Um, that and that it's a lot. It's about a lot more than just the Donbas. And that really undermines the idea that a peace deal is possible, given that the Ukrainian concept of victory and the Russian concept of victory, dare I say it, possibly even the concept of victory in Berlin and Washington, is different from either of those. We've got potentially three different versions of how this needs to end. Yes. And then I will say that in, in, in Berlin and Washington, many places in the West, there is also the, the problem that people maybe don't quite understand the what, what's happening. So they they have a sort of mental image of what, what's going on, and then that's what they, they argue from. And uh, I, I think there is a, a bit of mirror imaging going on there when people in in the west make assumptions about what are they fighting for they say ukraine is fighting to liberate all their lands that's what the ukrainians say that's i mean that's pretty clear so, okay so they want to push the russians out and they're fighting about these territories in eastern ukraine and then people assume that oh it, it must be the same that russia is fighting for so they're fighting about these territories in eastern ukraine but actually it's not russia is fighting for much more than that yeah sure these these territories are i mean it's it's important. It it gives some legitimacy to to the war effort inside of Russia that they can show this off. But the goals are much bigger. It is about uh, control over Ukraine in the long run. It's about Ukraine's future in NATO or not in NATO. It's about having the the, the grip on on the Ukrainian economy, making sure that Ukraine will never really be able to prosper without um, all the time being focused on on Moscow. So so these are some of the big questions. And it's just totally lost on many Western politicians who just say, oh, why don't they just give a little land and then things will be fine. And I think Ukrainians intrinsically understand this, that they cannot be 
any justice, any reparations. Uh, there cannot be a full recovery of the Ukrainian economy um, without this maximalist victory, including Crimea. I think it's well understood in Ukraine that a that a half victory is no victory at all. Um, and Russia equally, as you say, if they are entirely ejected from the territory of Ukraine, there is no way to spin that as a victory. Whereas any increased territory over and above what they had prior to full-scale war could be spun as a victory. So we've got two entirely incompatible uh, concepts here, and both sides have what the West lacks, which is the will to keep going until their version of victory has been achieved. Yeah, I think the West will get there, though. I mean, uh, I, I don't really see any other choice. I don't see the West uh, stepping down so much that we, we, we're we going to uh, let Russia win this thing. Um, so I don't see aid to Ukraine disappearing entirely. Um, but there is a problem right now where the decisions, the, the decisions need to be made now. We have this vacuum of strategy that needs to be filled somehow. And the, the faster, the better. Um, so, so I, I do think there is a, a, a problem right now, but if the right decisions are being made, then, um, the West will be able to support Ukraine and, and uh, for, for, uh, for the long haul in this and also boot, like boost production. Um, yeah, so, and, and eventually the West will have to realize that just because there is no, there is no other option. The, the war is not going to stop. And we've mentioned stalemate, we've mentioned these sort of clash of, of informational warfare and ideas. Let's put the counter argument, uh, I think, because there's a lot more nuance beneath the surface of this idea of stalemate. We have uh, Ukraine making extraordinary gains in the Black Sea, regaining sort of control of the sea lanes, being able to export um, you know, a, a lot of material this summer, which they couldn't do uh, last year. We have that extraordinary attack on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, um, which, uh, you know, launched a million NAFO memes. Um, and then even this week, we have the extraordinarily uh, daring attack on the BAM, the uh, Baikal, uh, Baikal Amur Railway, which gets to the heart of the supply lines between China and Russia. That's largely gone unnoticed. I don't know why, because it's it's extraordinarily powerful logistically, but also it sends a signal not just to Russia, but to China as well. An incredibly powerful act. And given that it is thousands of miles away from the front line, um, what what evidence do you see that undermines this idea of that it being a sort of stalemate? I think... Uh... The, the biggest problem with that is actually not the idea of, of a stalemate or such. It's, it's more the idea that this is a permanent thing. Like uh, uh, you used the, the term deadlock in the beginning of our conversation. I mean, and, and, and you can break a deadlock, right? So yes, there is this situation right now. I think Zalushni actually more uses the term positional um, warfare right now that we're in a phase of positional fighting. Well, that is true. I mean, that's evident. Everyone can see that. But that does not mean that this is a, a permanent feature and it's unbreakable. It just means you have to make a plan for how do we actually break that deadlock in, in the long run. Um, and then there's been a lot of dis discussion about, okay, it, is it a politically unacceptable to use the term stalemate or not? I mean, it's, it's a semantic uh, discussion more than a military one, I think. 
I, I think it's pretty clear that militarily, Ukraine is not in a position right now where they are able to uh to, to to push russia back in the land war i think russia is in the same position they're not able to push ukraine back and this is not a this is not a good situation for either part like uh, they both have goals that that require them to to break that deadlock and and, and push the other side back uh so um and i think actually zalushny in his uh article for the economist outlines a very good plan for how, how that is possible but he also makes the case that this is a this is a, this is a, a long-term plan it's it's not something that it, it will be possible to achieve in the short term it, it requires the investments it requires um, different implementation of technology it requires um, a, a, you know some of those things with that that it, it just takes just takes time to rebuild uh, some uh, to to build some of those capabilities that would be make it possible to break the deadlock. So maybe we're talking not 2024, but 2025 or 2026, and then that that deadlock will be broken. And he mentions he puts a real emphasis, doesn't he, on technologies and capabilities um, that could be new advanced drone warfare. It could be anti-electronic warfare. It could be uh, long-range missiles because we know that there are two flavors of attackums and actually um ukraine only has the sort of cluster version which is the shorter range um so again it's not that these are mythological technologies that haven't been built yet uh, it's about supplying the weaponry strategically to break the deadlock rather than supplying weaponry to just allow ukraine to stay in the fight absolutely um i think one of the examples I like to take uh, to, to to mention is the question of fighter jets. If we look at the Ukrainian armed forces when the invasion happened, like the Air Force was definitely a, a, a weak spot for them. They did not have an Air Force that sort of would be suitable for a, a country the size of Ukraine. But if we look at that, I mean, what would be a meaningful Air Force for Ukraine to have? War with Russia, no war with Russia. I think it would be be absolutely reasonable to have 300 400 maybe 500 fighter aircraft that that would not be outrageous for a country the size of ukraine um you know why don't we start building that like if we make a plan to provide three or four hundred fighter aircraft to ukraine and build that force toward say 2028 like that's a five-year plan from now uh, then that would definitely be something that over time would be significant, right? But in 2024, next year, it will be small numbers, right? So it, it just takes time to, to build these uh, capabilities. Um, but it's something that I, I think we need that perspective also to say, okay, even if the war then ends sooner than that, and that would be great. I mean, let's, I hope it does, then it would still make sense to build the Ukrainian Air Force, to, to having that kind of capability uh, after the war. And massive investment in HIMARS systems and, and so on, which Poland is now making incredible uh, investments in military. I mean, the last um, uh, point there, I guess, is you could say the same about tanks. You've got 14 challengers. You've got, uh, I think, 31 Abrams. This, again, perhaps is a failure of imagination to think that this small number uh, of of kit um 
you know, would not be damaged, would not break down, would not wear out, that somehow miraculously this tiny number uh, of, of armoured vehicles would, would actually cut through. Whereas I saw a clip yesterday of literally thousands, tens of thousands of tanks and armoured vehicles in in uh, in a desert in the US, just sort of, uh, you know, gathering, gathering dust, um, ageing uh, to the point where you'll incur costs of scrapping it at some point. Uh, again, this is, is this, could this, this be classed as a failure of will and imagination? Absolutely. I mean, looking back at it in hindsight, the whole, the whole plan, behind the Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think it was mostly uh, designed actually in the West. I think it was largely driven by what what is the political will uh, in the West? What are what are the politicians here willing to provide? And then you know the, the, a plan was made on the basis of that. and there were, it was this idea that if we just give a, give a little a few tanks and some infantry fighting vehicles, then everything would be fine. The Russians will run away. They don't have the morale. They don't have the, the logistics. Um, it, it was just a failed plan from the beginning. Extremely naive uh, when we look at the capabilities on the other side. And I think it was also just basically a misunderstanding of how our own doctrine actually works. Like we talk so much about maneuver warfare being the Western way of war and these kinds of things, but that is not actually the case. The case is just that we, that is how, that, that is, that is the army's part of the whole thing, right? But before the arm, the army even gets there, we will usually have the, the U S air force conducting months of bombing, uh, just uh, doing all the attrition first. Right. And we totally did not include that part uh, of, of the operation in the plan for the counteroffensive, we did not provide the the means for Ukraine to do that attrition. Uh, you talk about attack hymns. Well, now they do have attack hymns. They did not have attack hymns a year ago when that would have been super relevant in preparation for that counteroffensive. So, I mean, it, it was just unrealistic that. Uh, the counteroffensive would be able to produce these kinds of results. And actually, I'm, I, I really, I, I know Ukraine has been wargaming these kinds of things in the West, has been getting help with how to make the plans and, and test the plans in war games. I would really like to know like what kind of assumptions have been going into these war games so that they would show that this would be successful. It, it, they, they must really have been counting on the Russians just being absolutely incompetent um, to to get to the result that this would be sufficient. Very dangerous assumption. And uh, I guess the last point there is it is rumored that part of this war gaming was to get Ukraine to throw mass battalions at um, the defensive fortifications. In hindsight, um, we can see that the probing operations have, have uh, caused considerable car casualties with no real chance of a breakthrough. Ukrainians, I think, are much more realistic. They're actually much more defensive of not wasting life uh, of their of their troops indiscriminately um, because they have a social contract uh, which could break down if they if they uh, you know are seen to be profligate or or contemptuous of their people. Um, this also suggests perhaps that on our side. Uh, we are dealing with this in a fairly abstract way, perhaps using the wrong assumptions. Um, 
and, and, and that could be very dangerous for our own people, our own troops. It could cause huge wastage uh, if we covered it from this fairly sort of academic standpoint, um, like we saw in the First World War and the you know horrific losses in Passchendaele and uh, you know all these uh, battles that we saw in the First World War. Absolutely. Um, uh, we we really need to look at this war and see what we can learn from it, uh, how we would deal with some of these problems that Ukraine is facing right now. And just the, the, the scale of it, as we also talked about in the beginning, this be the scale, meaning that this is substantially different just because of the scale. Like the whole idea that Ukraine, it is general generally it's good military practice to say you focus your forces you don't spread out your forces but if if you can see right from the beginning that there's there's no chance of success in this operation and if i focus all my forces on going ahead in this direction then i'm going to lose them all then that is obviously not a smart way to to go about it I, and I think it was good that Ukrainians very quickly realized that this plan that that we have made together with the West, I mean, it's not a good plan. Let's not do that. <laughs> Let's do something else in, in, instead. Um, but and and then then it's been really frustrating to hearing um, Western military experts afterwards criticizing the Ukrainians for not doing them as we as we told them. It's it just seems totally unrealistic. I think. What we are seeing in Avdiivka right now, uh, where we see the Russians doing these kinds of human meat wave attacks, basically, I guess that's what the West was advising Ukraine to do, right? And I, I hope that's not how how we would go about it and and treat our own forces if if we were in that situation. Yes, it's 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 horrific, but it's also not working particularly well for the Russians. Um, the last question really is, uh, I guess, a bit of an abstract one. If uh, decision makers in Washington, Berlin and, and other capitals get to hear this video, what message would you want to convey to them? Uh, the, the most important thing is we need to understand that this is a long war. We need to equip Ukraine to win the war. We need to understand what Russia is fighting for and that there is no peace deal somewhere on the table. Um, the only way forward is to equip Ukraine to win a long war of attrition. And then we have to understand that where we are right now is that we are actually a year behind on many of these decisions. It means that Russia does have the advantage in the short run. So the goal is to make sure that you know we will overtake Russia in maybe a year or two years time and 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 Ukraine will be able to to win it there. Um, but the, the biggest problem really is this misunderstanding of what the situation is. Uh, and how dangerous it is and how big Russia's ambitions actually are in uh, in all this. It's been fantastic uh, to have a speak to you, Anders, and uh, I always learn a, a vast amount, and it really sharpens the thinking. I know the audience will appreciate this uh, conversation massively. Thank you so much, and I really just get, let us know when the book's out, because I think there'll be a, a massive uh, English language uh, demand for it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you know if it happens, but thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.